I rewrote the sermon last night. What I really wanted to do today was celebrate you, Bering Memorial Church. A year ago, we blessed all of our unions as sacred in the sight of God. And you have stood for so many years for the cause of justice on so many fronts. And I want to applaud and affirm you. And we will do that. But there are some things happening right now in our nation and in the church in America that we cannot ignore, that we must speak to. And so this morning, on the eve of the day we honor the life, witness, and martyrdom of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., I find myself once again needing to choose my words very carefully. Those responsible for both state and religiously supported violence must be held accountable. As must those who claim the name of Christ and yet line up behind such violence for their own personal, political, and socioeconomic gain. But, like Dr. King urged and lived, we must speak and organize to do so in a way that is nonviolent, that speaks love in the midst of hate, and that, when necessary, walks out and away from denominational, religious, political, and or nationalistic institution and leaders who perpetuate support or, by their inaction, allow violence, whether verbal or physical, to be perpetrated in the name of Christ. The attempts by such institutions and leaders to downplay what is happening and what has happened tells us that we have forgotten our history and the lessons that we should have learned from it. So, this morning, let's take a few moments and look at that history so that we can remember and not repeat the same mistakes. During the rise of Adolf Hitler to power in Germany, it was the German church that lined up squarely behind him, intimating, if not specifically stating, that he was God's messenger. Hermann Gruner, a leading Christian pastor in the German church at the time, said this, and I quote, It is because of Hitler that Christ, God the helper and redeemer, has become effective among us. Hitler is the way of the Spirit and the will of God for the German people to enter the church of Christ. End quote. As horrific as those words are, they resonate far too closely with words recently spoken by Franklin Graham and other leaders within the religious right who have actively or by their complicit silence supported violence against and abuse of immigrants, women, black lives that matter, the poor, the LGBTQAI plus community, and persons of other religious convictions, as well as the attacks on the very foundations of our democracy that led to the assault on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, and which have been the hallmark of the Trump presidency. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German theologian who gave his life 
to confront and end the state and religiously sanctioned violence and discrimination that was the hallmark of the Nazi regime called the church to account for its cheap grace that pursued its own self-interest and preservation at the cost of its witness. The church in America would do well to heed his words today. Bonhoeffer was explicit about the church's obligation to fight political injustice in at least three ways. Saying that the church must question state injustice and call the state to responsibility. The church must help the victims of injustice, whether they are Christian or not. And ultimately, the church must answer God's call to not only help the victims who have fallen under the wheel of political and religious injustice, but if necessary, fall themselves into the spokes of that very wheel in order to halt the machinery of injustice. I believe that is the call of God on the church in America today, including the Methodist denomination, which has forgotten the lessons of its own history of exclusionary policies adopted to preserve the power and privilege of a few at the cost of its witness and to the harm of those Christ called us to serve. Included in that Methodist history is the Sand Creek Massacre, which occurred on the morning of November 29, 1864, when Colonel John Milton Shivington, a Methodist pastor, led a surprise attack on a Cheyenne and Arapaho encampment. The attack turned into slaughter, claiming about 200 Native American lives, including women, children, and the elderly. The United Methodist Church did not own or apologize for its involvement in that massacre until the General Conference of 1996. And Native Americans remain marginalized within the denomination, even today. Also included in our Methodist history is the segregation promise compromise of 1939. The merger that created the Methodist Church occurred only because of the willingness of all parties involved to accept a compromise with white supremacists in the South who insisted that a separate jurisdiction based exclusively on race must be created. And as a result of that compromise, 19 black annual conferences of the Methodist Episcopal Church were placed in the central jurisdiction, and the white conferences were placed in five regional jurisdictions that exist today. We are still suffering the aftermath of that compromise as racism continues to plague this denomination. Our Methodist history includes over 44 years of excluding LGBTQAI plus persons from ministry and marriage. In 1972, the General Conference falsely condemned homosexuality as incompatible with Christian teaching. Four years later, it banned funding for any organization advocating on behalf of LGBTQAI plus persons. In 1984, the General Conference banned the ordination of anyone who was a self-avowed practicing homosexual. Their words, not mine. 
That policy smacks of a policy adopted in Wittenberg in 1933 by the National Synod of the German Church, banning from ordained ministry any confessing Christian with Jewish blood. Our denominational hands are dirty, and they got even dirtier when in February 2019, a minority faction once again took over the church, dictating draconian, exclusionary, soul-harming policies against those made in the image of God as LGBTQAI+. And we continue to allow that stance to be honored for the sake of not offending people. Since when did keeping people happily settled in their privilege become the litmus test for following Jesus Christ? I think Jesus was pretty clear that to follow Jesus required laying down one's life and taking up a cross. But it doesn't stop there. Our Methodist history also includes our denominational countenance of and participation in the abuse of the immigrant population. Despite United Methodist resolutions clearly stating that God calls us to welcome the immigrant and refugee as we would the citizen, Bishop Huey and I both got hate emails and hate postal mail from leading United Methodist pastors and laity in this conference and elsewhere when we opened Justice for Our Neighbors Immigration Legal Clinics in the Texas Annual Conference. In trying to address such resistance, I was repeatedly told that I have to honor differences of opinion. After all, we can't afford to upset and offend members, and especially not conservative donors. The UMC is already in decline. And there you have it. The reason that we are in the political and denominational catastrophe in which we find ourselves is that we, the people who name the name of Christ, have compromised with that which is not the gospel in order to maintain wealth, power, and privilege at the expense of the welfare of millions of people and contrary to the call of God. It's time to stop participating in the harm that comes from honoring stances and actions that are contrary to the gospel by those who claim the name of Christ in our denomination and others and in our national and state political leadership. Enough is enough. It's time to step up and call them all and ourselves to account. To say that we should just let bygones be bygones for the sake of unity, just because the head of the serpent is leaving in four days, is like telling someone to let a murderer go free for the sake of unity, since in four days he will no longer have a gun. That is horse manure, and it needs to be called for what it is. As you can hear and see, I'm pretty riled up this morning. <laughs> So let's pray, because I do believe that God has a positive word for us today, one that can enable us to stand and keep standing for justice in the midst of injustice so that the truth and welcome of Jesus Christ for all of God's children is heard and made real in the earth so that we can build the beloved community that God has called us to build and so that we can get on with the business of building it. 
Let's pray. God, what we really want to do is just turn the other way. We're all so very tired. We're tired of isolating. We're tired of wearing masks. We're tired of this virus. We're tired of not being able to see each other. We just want to go back to things the way they were, and we're tired of hearing all the political rancor, and we just want to check out. But God, you are calling us into that chaos to bring order. You are calling in us into that chaos to bring justice. You are calling us into the world to be the voices of love and light and welcome and hope. So there is a place at your table for all of God's children, the earth and its creatures. And so God, don't let us grow weary in well-doing. Remind us who we are. Remind us who you are. Remind us that anything you call us to do, you also equip us to do. And make us instruments of your peace so that your kingdom might truly come on earth, even as it is in heaven. For we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. The call of God on our lives is clearly set out in our baptismal vows. So this morning, I'd like you to stand wherever you are. It's okay that I can't see or anybody else can't see. I'd like you to stand. And I would like you to, re to respond to these vows out loud. The fact that I can't hear you or anyone else doesn't matter. It matters that we say them, that we affirm them, and that we do so out loud. There's something important about reaffirming the call of God on our lives that we confirmed in our baptism. Do you renounce the spiritual forces of wickedness, reject the evil powers of this world, and repent of our sins? I do. Do you accept the freedom and power God gives you to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves? I do. Do you confess Jesus Christ is your Savior, put your whole trust in His grace, and promise to serve Him as your Lord in union with the church, which Christ has opened to people of all ages, nations, races, gender identities, and sexual orientations? I do. You may be seated. That's a tough call. But Jesus never promised us that the call would be easy. Jesus did promise us that if we answered the call, we would find life. And more, the life more abundantly. As difficult as this call is in this hour, I do believe that God has given us all that we need to respond to it, to answer it fully, and to become instruments of peace and justice and light and hope in our denomination, in our nation, and in the world. And so I'd like to, us to look at our three texts for this morning to see how they might help us, encourage us, so that we step out boldly in faith to do what God has called us to do and follow where God calls us to go. Our psalm reminds us that we are created by the holy God who calls us. The one who calls us is the one who made us. The one who equipped us 
the one who created us uniquely in all of our distinctness, who gifted each one of us with different gifts so that together we are able to do whatever it is God calls us to do. The one who calls us also promises to go before us, to come behind us, to walk beside us, that this one is actually within us as close as our own breath. It doesn't matter where we go or where we're driven. God's already there. God is present. And so the call of God comes by the one who created us, equipped us to answer the call, and who is committed to going with us into that call so that we have everything we need to know life and light and hope and to be the instruments of God's justice in the world. And that's good news. We need not be afraid because God's with us and God knows us intimately. God knows our fears. God knows our weaknesses. God knows our strengths and is going to use all of them to accomplish God's purpose. So we can risk losing our future in order to claim God's future. We can risk losing what was and what is in order to create and claim what could be the very kingdom of God on earth. Knowing that God goes with us, that God equips us, that almighty God who created us is the one who is calling us. Our text from Samuel tells us some other things that are hopeful. (laughs) The first is that even if we don't understand or hear or discern the call of God at first, God will keep calling until we do. The second is that God gives us one another, even in all of our imperfection, to help each other discern the call of God. And that's why it's so important that we learn to listen to and listen for one another. And the third is that the only response when God calls is the response of Samuel. Here I am, Lord. Your servant is listening. Samuel was just a young boy in the temple. He was being mentored by the priest Eli, who was so old he had lost his sight. And Samuel doesn't recognize the call of God when it comes. He thinks it's Eli. And so he goes three times and says, why did you call me? And the first two times, even Eli doesn't discern that this is God calling. But God keeps calling until both Eli and Samuel recognize the call of God. And Eli tells Samuel, go back. And if God calls again, answer, here I am. Your servant is listening. What we don't have in our text, but what follows, is the content of that message. And it was a tough message. God told Samuel that God was anointing Samuel to be a prophet to Israel. That God was going to move Samuel away from Eli. That Samuel was now to go on his own to a new place to follow God in his prophetic calling But that Eli had done some things that had to be dealt with. And although Eli had been God's choice of a mentor, Eli had given Samuel everything Eli could give him. And now it was time to leave Eli behind and go do what God had called. And God was going to deal with Eli's sin. 
Now imagine being a young boy and being told that. Imagine how frightened Samuel must have been to speak that truth to Eli. Just as frightened as we are to speak truth to power. But God gave Samuel what he needed to speak the truth to Eli. And to Eli's credit, Eli owned his sin and honored the voice of God in Samuel. That may not be true for us when we speak truth to power. But God will give us what we, it is we need to say when we are called to do so. And so when God calls and we discern God's voice, the only response is, here I am, Lord. Your servant is listening. And that's what we see in our gospel lesson Jesus, this guy from Nazareth, we don't really get that because we have all these lovely scenes about Christmas and baptism and all that, but Nazareth was considered the hood. I mean, nobody came out of Nazareth that you wanted to pay any attention to. And so Philip, as soon as he hears God's call and Jesus just gets up and follows him, he doesn't say, well, now wait a minute. What about all these people I'm leaving behind? Now, wait a minute, how am I going to pay for that? Now, wait a minute, what about the building? Now, wait a minute, where are we going? He just goes. And not only that, he's so convinced that this is the one to follow, that this is the call of God, that he goes and gets Nathaniel and said, hey, you got to come see this guy. We found the Messiah. We found the one that Mo Moses promised would come. And I love Nathaniel because Nathaniel is like me. He's a doubter. He's a questioner. He's not so easily convinced. And Nathaniel says, what? You want me to get up and leave everything in my life and follow some dude from Nazareth? Nothing good ever comes out of Nazareth. And yet, when Nathaniel goes, the first thing Jesus says when he sees Nathaniel is, here is an Israelite in whom there is no guile. How is that? Because Nathaniel was authentic. Nathaniel asked his questions. Nathaniel voiced his doubts, but he kept his heart open and his mind opened to, be, to have his mind and his heart changed. And when he encounters Christ, all the questions subside. And he knows this is the one he must follow without question. And that's the same call that comes to us. Jesus comes and says, follow me. You don't have to have all the answers. God didn't tell Abraham when he left Ur of the Chaldees where he was going or how he was going to get there or what it was going to look like. He just said, follow, go. Go to the place I'll show you. And Abram went. God didn't tell Moses when he sent him to deliver the children of Israel that, hey, by the way, you're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years with these obstructionist, grumpy, contentious people. And when you get to the promised land, you're not going in. But Moses answered the call of God and went. And Jesus does not tell his disciples what it's going to cost them. <laughs> he doesn't tell them what's going to happen. He just says, follow me. But it, what he does promise them is this, and it's a direct reference to the G dream of Jacob in Genesis 28. That they will see the angels of heaven 
angels of God descending and ascending between earth and heaven. Now that reference is a reference to a dream that Jacob had. Jacob was a conniver, remember? He just tricked his brother out of his birthright and he had to flee his father and his mother and his homeland to go to a place he didn't know. And he falls asleep and has a dream. And in that dream, he sees a ladder from earth to heaven and the angels descending and ascending. It's where we get the song, We Are Climbing Jacob's Ladder. When Jacob awakes from the dream, he realizes that he has been sleeping, standing on sacred ground, that he has been in the very presence of God and didn't know it. And he calls the place Bethel, which means the house of God. And what Jesus is telling the disciples and telling us this morning is that if you follow me, you will live a life in the presence of God. You will dwell in the house of God. And you will become the ladder between heaven and earth and earth and heaven so that all who want to, all who hear the good news may enter in. So that all may find their place at the table, a place of dignity, a place of voice, a place of welcome, a place of celebration, a place of being seen and heard and celebrated in all their uniqueness. And that's the call of God. And it's the call to the church. And it's the call that is on us in this moment. And the only response is, Here I am, Lord. Your servant is listening. May God give us the courage and the wisdom and the boldness to answer that call so that justice reigns in the earth even as it does in heaven. In the name of the Creator, Redeemer, and Sustainer, Amen.